1: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. We're going to devote this entire episode to the great prince who died last week at the age of 57. We're going to talk about some of our favorite prince songs and also a lost interview by one of our reporters. Today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC. We're going to start with a very special edition of what we're listening to devoted to Prince. I'm here with Rob Sheffield, Contributing Editor, Rolling Stone. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Rob. And John Dolan, Contributing Editor and Record Reviews Editor. Hey. Hey, John. Hey, Let's just talk about what we're listening to, what Prince songs. We've all been working on the next issue of Rolling Stone where Prince is on the cover and a lot of stuff for the website. Rob, you wrote an incredible essay about Prince on rollingstone.com. What have you been listening to? The song I keep coming back to is, is
0: the ballad of Dorothy Parker, which is from Sign of the Times, which is my favorite Prince record. Along with nineteen ninety nine, those two are like the titans for me. One is a boy who's like discovering the world and, and kind of on either
1: pole, right? Like yeah. definite the range. Some yeah. of the times
0: is a grown man who like doesn't understand why everything is so difficult. And there are all these great pained uh love ballads on the record, especially that whole suite on side three. It's funny that ballad Dorothy Parker sounds like it should be on side three of that album. Mm. But it's like a little taster on side one,
1: right? Uh, Foreshadowing.
0: Yeah. If I was your girlfriend on that album, a "Strange Ugh. Relationship," and I could never take the place of your man, which has got to be one of the weirdest top forty singles of the eighties <laughs> decade. That was nothing but weird top forty singles. But the ballad of Dorothy Parker, it's a crazy Prince. Well, it's a Prince song about bonding with an attractive stranger who, who whom he does not sleep with, which uh, made it a real formal breakthrough for, for, for him at the time. <laughs>
1: They,
0: they take a bubble bath with their pants on and you know meanwhile he's fighting with his girlfriend he says "Ooh, I'm leaving my pants on because I'm kind of going with someone and they're sort of just negotiating the boundaries they're talking they're listening they're laughing she makes him laugh they listen to Joni Mitchell together her phone rings and she doesn't answer it because whoever's calling couldn't be as cute as you which is the last time in human history a girl has ever said this. And uh, after just a night of hanging out with Dorothy Parker, he has this whole new perspective on who he is and his relationship with his girlfriend. And he goes back to his girlfriend, and they take a bubble bath with their pants on. It's really just a very economical, it's a song with a lot of emotional depth to it in uh, just a really short space. And it's this really moody, computer blue kind of R&B. It's just an absolutely mind-boggling song. And it exemplifies the kind of song that Prince wrote that... Nobody else wrote. I mean, nobody else could have written a song like that.
1: Amen. I mean, so many of his most beautiful songs are beautiful in such weird ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I love you mentioned. I, if I was your girlfriend from that album, that's probably my favorite. What so a great gorgeous. Song, yeah. John, what have you been listening to, or, or do you have a all-time favorite print song? This is this is a two-part question.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think my all-time favorite is. Well, I did listen to like the first just because I wanted to hear kind of effortless greatness, just bang, 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 these singles. And so I wanted to listen to that first disc of the hits thing because it's just like you, he's the only person, solo artist, I think, you know, the only artist, I guess, or band or whatever who could do that many songs like that in a row like that. And it's like, you know, the Beatles, it's like as great as hits goes, it goes up against the Beatles, but there was just, there was just one of him. You know, he's the only person who had, who was to be able to, to could do all these things and just... Himself, um, well, I think as, I, as I said, as,
1: as he said at the the last time I saw him at Madison Square Garden, too many hits. He just had too many. <laughs> hits you get to as like, he was uh, like dancing uh, on the uh, piano, think pop I mean, those life or so- something.
2: Some of the songs that are the greatest are in the third, you know, disc or whatever. But like, it, I think the the song that resonates at least resonates the most with me now, and it's going to change because I'm going to go back and listen to things I haven't listened to for a while. But is is Uptown. grew up in Minnesota. Yeah. I was spent all yesterday just looking at talking to people, talking to friends and, and looking at things. And you know, people gathered around First Avenue in Minneapolis. It was so packed in there. That where he filmed Purple Rain and played some of these shows. It was so packed in there, you, the people couldn't move on the street, and they were just singing his songs. And First Avenue had an all-night dance party that started at 11 and went till 8 in the morning of all print songs. And so Uptown is the song about the Uptown. It's a little area in, in South in, in Minneapolis, which is kind of this, he makes it this kind of utopian place where kind of culture is all going to take off. He says, white, black, Puerto Rican, everyone's just a freak. And we're, you know, it's going to be this sort of place where everyone's going to get together, and we're going to sort of remake, you know, culture, I guess, a little bit. And it starts off, it's on Dirty Mind, which is an album that sonically really does seem to be, it's it's like weird how it's just a couple years or just ahead of its time sonically. Like, it really sounds like the 80s are, is starting when you hear that record, the way that just everything from the way the drums sound to the to the, to the kind of way he's combining genres already. And I, I know like 1999 is a more of an opus, you know, it's like this is just kind of like getting started and moving towards that. But like you really do feel like he's 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 it's the you find him becoming effortless. He's he's the weird artist where you know he has a couple records that aren't as you know where he's still finding himself. Then this thing happens and it's just it's taking off. Then he goes on and basically like what a 10-year run, where it's just you know I mean there's a couple moments, but it's pretty it's pretty astonishing.
1: Uptown is one of my favorite songs of all time too. As is I think you said something like this, Rob. Like only Prince, with all due respect to Minneapolis only Prince could turn Minneapolis into like the sexiest, most exciting place in the world. Minneapolis sex city, I think you (laughs) you,
0: (laughs) call it That's like what John was just saying, that it presents this area of Minneapolis that it celebrates it as this just cultural utopia.
2: Yesterday I talked to Paul Westerberg um, for us and he was, you know, from the replacements and he's talked about just seeing Prince and, and he talked about growing up in this like place where people were kind of reserved and people were kind of cautious. And he said, we both had to learn ways to get people to react. And we learned very different ways. Like he became like a sex god <laughs> and I became like this drunk wise actor. But like we both kind of had to do it. And he talked about seeing shows. There's a g- really great story where it's actually in The Replacements book. And he talked about a little where Tommy Stinson is watching a replacement show at First Avenue. I mean, a Prince show at First Avenue. He's standing next to Rico Kasik, And Prince does one of his things where he does like a Jimi Hendrix show. Then he does the splits or. Or whatever, that he just you know jumps up and Tommy Stinson bangs on. Rico case backs and says top that fucker and it's just like one of these moments of like local pride like he was our guy you know And like and they, I, lo-
1: I love that even the replacements appreciated Prince you never think of them in the same they design. covered yeah. him a, a yeah. once in a
2: while like in right. some of their drunken things and they talks about like he says you know when um, I Want to Be Your Lover came out it was because Minneapolis radio and Minneapolis in general it's, it's segregated and the radio wasn't playing it he's like I heard there was this guy who had this hit who was local but I had to go buy it like it wasn't on the radio here even though it was a big hit so then I got it it blew my mind and it, he, he was a fan And, and Bob Mould also wrote a really loving tribute to him on. That yeah. on, on, was the same thing. Like you know, I never really met him, which is weird because they played the same places. They were around Bob Mould of Who's the other great Minneapolis punk band, and they kind of just writing about just like being in awe. And I think they were everyone was just in awe of him. He was a such just the center of the community there in, in, in a lot of ways. Even if he was a shy, reclusive presence, you know, who didn't like he wasn't out. But you know, being. Super visual. I mean, you'd see him at like, you know, he'd go to a Vikings game, he had a booth, you know, he'd go to a Timberwolves game or whatever. But <laughs> and he and people would, people were around him in, in different ways. But he, you know, he was such a presence. It's hard to imagine what it'll be like there without just knowing that he's kind of around. It's very strange.
1: I loved your interview with Westerberg and that's on Rollingstone.com right now. I encourage anyone, people to check it out because it really does place him as, I mean, as someone not from Minneapolis, It's aside from seeing Purple Rain, which I know probably wasn't the most true-to-life
2: thing, it bad. wasn't a way, yeah.
1: but I mean, it, just, it placed him as someone who just lived in
2: Minneapolis and walked around and rode his bike. And, we and, all and, rode our motorcycles it, out to Lake Minnetonka <laughs> I was just right passage growing up there. It's just something we all did. It's just kind of how we lived. That's the life there. Um,
0: so, uh, last night I went to the bar in, in greenpoint brooklyn lake street where which is where the minnesotans hang out in this neighborhood and and it was a it had the local pride which was an angle of prince that i didn't really like know so well they had purple banners up and they were playing the movie on the screen they had a big painting in the window and uh bobby from the hold steady was djing all the prince hits and it was really funny to talk last night with so many people who had this really specific Prince experience being from his hometown and that local pride thing that, that you were saying.
2: Yeah. he. I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean, whatever it's true. I mean, everyone, it's like, it's he, uh, there was a huge, there was a really big local kind of funk pop kind of scene that he was the epicenter of. And it was interesting. Like people have connections to people. I mean, I was lucky enough when I was working back in Minneapolis at the local alt weekly to get to go to one of these Paisley park shows he plays all night and most people there have that experience like most it's not you hear about him you go to him and it's most people who are involved in music there get to see these things and you don't know is he going to show up is what time is he going to show up what's he going to do but I mean, the one I saw, we got there at one. It was, no one was even there yet, really. And it was weird. It was Paisley Park, you drive up there. It's it's in Chanhassen, which is about 20 minutes outside of Minneapolis. And you see this weird kind of compound-looking thing bathed in, like, lavender light, lavender neon light. Then you go in there, and it's, like, it's laid out. You know, he obviously, he doesn't drink. He doesn't, you know, whatever. So it's laid out, like, almost like maybe, like, a formal or a Christian party for, like, used teens or something like that. There's, like, soda and water is like you can drink. And he has, like, laid out chips and dip for you to have if you want it. And then he goes on there and plays, like, funk covers for four hours and it's just an astonishing thing to, to get to see. I got to see, I mean, that's, that's the kind of a thing that most, I mean, most people who are into the local music scene have one of those nights. It's right. just, wow. unique. well, John Dolan, thanks for coming on.
1: Rob Sheffield. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, What's your Nathan. favorite? Yeah, really, oh, man. I well literally uptown. <laughs> and I, I guess the thing to me, it's like, you, it's interesting. Cause you had the experience of uptown as a real place you know but as you kind of hit it at, at your in your essay rob it's like prince also created his own uptown like he created this play like uptown was like uh there's like no other artist i feel like where, that created their own world as
2: powerfully as prince
0: it's like he imagined this cultural utopia and became something that that took hold in people's imaginations.
2: I mean, the only possible comparison, it's so weird, but I guess Bowie, right? I mean, like, he's the American Bowie. Yeah, he was a unifier, you know? He
1: really did. He brought in so many things. And as uh, Joe Levy, who's writing the cover story, pointed out I mean maybe that might account for some of his patch in the 90s which was a little more difficult because a lot of music was fragmenting in the 90s there wasn't as much the 90s wasn't about music coming together as much you know people grunge bands were grunge bands you know and it was great for fans
2: because everybody had lots of different stuff to listen to but you didn't it was harder to jump from genre to genre. I actually kind of think with the 90s thing what it's talking about cultural utopias and, and uptown and stuff like that is that he really you know after all his and it was well earned his disdain of the record industry he turned inward you know and and did kind of turned away from the pop marketplace um a little bit and and sort of became like you know doing these the albums that were a little more about him and his his the world he'd set up in paisley park and they were a little more insular and, and they had moments but like his 90s was a reaction to his 80s in a way that was you know i guess i don't know what sort of problematic or something it's, it was a difficult
1: but then he figured it out i think in his own way in the 2000s i feel like he really kind of
2: came to terms with it and it, it, those, ran, those run of incredible shows yeah his legacy he understood his like came to i mean it's weird to sort of work out your legacy at the super bowl but right. you know it's like he, did, yeah. he totally did it with, with like, the fighter's yeah. cover <laughs> yeah i mean that it's still like it's funny that's the thing people right. jump to the, it was fun i don't know like last night i mean yes you we were out i was like watching like, seeing what people were putting on like they put, somebody put on him doing lots of the Super Bowl thing, but also just these weird moments like you can on YouTube you can watch the, the performance of Purple Rain at First Avenue that became the version on the record, which is like 18 minutes long. Wow. And it starts with Wendy Mulvain like playing this the, the for ever and ever and ever. And obviously they did tons of overdubs and stuff like that. Somebody put on a version of just my imagination from Germany in like the 90s, which is amazing. It's been fun. It's like you just the community this is it's just I guess it's like Bowie, but the community that's kind of grown up around this moment is at least one of the things you can take from it that's kind of positive because that's obviously sort of pressing. Amen. Well, we've ranged well beyond what we're listening
1: to, but there's really no other topic in the office right now than than Prince. So, guys, thanks for coming on. Thank you. We're going to get back to Prince, but first we're going to make a shout-out to our sponsor, Stamps.com. These days you can get practically everything on demand, music, music news, this podcast, So why are you still leaving your place of work to make time-consuming trips to the post office when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official United States postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. So sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code MUSIC for this special offer. You're going to get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage, and a complimentary digital scale. Cool piece of hardware. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in music. That's stamps.com and enter music. You'll be showing us some love, and I feel like uh, we're pretty lucky to have gotten the promo code music, which is much cooler than TED Talks promo code. (laughs) I'm back here with Rob Sheffield and senior writer Brian Hyatt. Hey Brian. Hi. Hey Brian. We're going to hello to you, (laughs) Rob. Hello to both of y'all. We're going to talk about a piece that's in the issue, which is coming out next week, uh, by Brian, and is a portion of which is on um, RollingStone.com about uh, a lost Rolling Stone interview with Prince from a couple of years ago. Brian, you went to Paisley Park and spent a fair amount of time with Prince. This was going to be for a cover story, which never ran because we never ended up doing a shoot, but because Prince didn't want to do a shoot, (laughs) but you did all the reporting for it. Do you want to talk about what your experience was like?
3: Yeah, you know, so Prince, you know, to be clear, Prince tried to provide us with a photo that he had taken himself that uh, our photo editor found unacceptable, and we were never able to uh, reach an agreement on that, so that's what happened there. Right. Uh, And then people asked, why didn't we run it inside the magazine? And the answer is, you know, it's actually really, it really hurts to say the answer, which is we thought we would, you know, we'd come up with another album, it would be time to do another cover, and then I would basically be able to do a part two to this interview and, you know, be great, you know, I'd have this part. And so it just feels actually painful you know, I always thought we'd be saving it for another cover, but not this one. So, But anyway, so, I mean, you know, the experience was incredible. Um, it was, and and I've been saying, like, all the more surreal in that I never got to write about it. I, I went from, you know, Paisley Park to doing, like, the next story, which I think was, was I, I've looked back, and it was actually Kiss. I went right to interview Kiss for their first cover, and so... And then, then I was doing that, and then this never happened, so I never got even started writing it. So it's, it stood alone as this as this unique experience. And what it was, it was like seven hours at Paisley Park on an absolutely bitter cold winter day in, in January 2014, and I... I came out there, and of course, you come out there and you get into your hotel room and you wait for it to be summoned to Paisley Park. And then you're summoned, it's like, and they said it'll be around 7 p.m., which it was, you know. It didn't start at 2 a.m., it wasn't anything crazy like that. So I go out at 7 p.m., and, and, you know, Paisley Park is this self enclosed world. It, It was. At the time, he had Third Eye Girl, which was his all-female power trio there. And there's a lot of tests before you could f- talk to Prince. Like, first, you, <laughs> first, I, I believe I had to talk to Third Eye Girl. And at one point, he, I think, snuck up on us to listen to us talking to, to make sure I was, you know, that, that the vibes were good. And I apparently passed. And then there was another test where he um, took me to a mural that had pictures of I don't know. One of them was Grand Funk Railroad. There were a bunch of, you know, and, and then basically I was, I had to, Larry Graham was there, and it, basically I had to identify the photos. And then oh. I think, had I not identified, you know, some of these people, I, I probably would have, I might have been out. Um, it's hilarious <laughs> right. that Grand Funk was there, of course. Um, but that was a band he saw early on. So, and then, you know, and so then we, Talked. Well, um, I, I yeah, do remember, yeah. you
1: know, just from setting it up that yeah. that uh, yeah, Third Eye Girl was a big priority for him. As all, you know, like Prince had such a history of bringing up groups, starting with like the Time, and then Apollonia and Vanity, and you know, he it, they were his, you know, his, right. It,
3: this was it, a cross it, between the Revolution, a backing group, right. and then sort of its own thing as well.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But he and it was also very. It was a creative year for him, right? He had a funk record and the Third Eye Girl record. My sunshine so at that
3: point, um, it's interesting. It was actually months later, if I remember correctly, that those albums actually came out. You know, so he played me the third Eye Girl record, and then he started to play stuff from the other record, the solo record, and which I think wasn't quite a record at that point. It wasn't clear, and then he ended up putting them out together. Um, but he was very excited, and I've always said, like, you know, he took me up to his office, which was really just an office on the second floor, and there's was this. Im- I mean, you know, he had so <laughs> you know, literally just
1: an o- just yeah, like it was an office. It was staplers like staplers, you know, yeah. And it had a Xerox
3: machine, and 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 uh, and the the best part, for some reason, I never stopped finding this funny is that he, was, he had a Dell computer, like, with a big box, <laughs> with, a, with a big boxy, shitty monitor, you know, and he's sitting, you know, and, sitting there and prints himself, just the two of us, and he sits there and he's, like, clicking the, like, he wasn't, like, super great at using the computer, and he's just, like, sitting there, like, clicking, and he played it, I think, on, like, Windows Media Player, and, and, with, and the, my favorite thing is that, first of all, he had his, his screensaver was, like, a somewhat chintzy shot from one of his recent albums. Uh, like, the cover of uh, whatever recent album. And then he put on the visualizer, you know, that thing where it makes the, like... The designs, you know, when it pl- right. when it plays the music, he he put he, he he put that on. So we're looking at the the chintzy like Microsoft visualizer. That was your visual the, accompaniment. That, that was his, you know, like like you know, when I first, <laughs> right? I, I used to hear Prince songs and it would be like you know uh, the the when doves Cry video, and now it was the the Microsoft Windows visualizer and him right next to me. Oh, and it, so there was there was something. It was that incongruousness of the of the magic and also the mundane of, right. of of you know this was his office. That was his specific office, but the whole thing was his office. I mean, Paisley Park was. Just his office. It was the place where he did his work,
1: you know. Right, right. But then you got to see him play close. Yeah, and then then he was, um,
3: at some point, he promised that you would only understand the sort of third eye girl experience and possibly the secrets of life itself if you felt the vibrations of them playing. And and in order to illustrate that, he put me on stage about maybe two feet from him on a chair and uh, set the band up and played uh actually a cover of a song from the Billy Cobham jazz fusion album spectrum uh, and, and and played it because we had been talking about it earlier and played a, a like a Absolutely blazing! This, by the way, is the album that has. As a side note, is this is the influence that he and Eddie Van Halen shared. Uh, they both love this album, and it both has this kind of like blazing. I forgot the guitarist, but some you know one of those great guys, and it has this blazing fusion-y guitar playing. And that's why kind of why they sound somewhere sometimes when they play guitar. But so you know that exists in my memory is almost like a black hole because it was such an intense experience. I was two feet away from him playing. Just to break in, it's funny
1: because, Rob, you talk about Eddie Van Halen and and Prince in your essay about how – Van Halen kind of with jumps took a little bit of Prince's style, and then Prince came back with "Let's Go Crazy," right? and Kind of yeah. took Van Halen style. So they're utopian sort of, sharing of um, right. Yes. there was it's, a conversation there. Yeah, but,
3: but yeah, and and then it turns out that they yeah they did share some uh, you know is it, that, that's where they came together. If, was, was, was that John, John McLaughlin? I believe it was McLaughlin. Yes, that, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 of yeah, yeah who they course, both yeah. like. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's the common. I think I learned that because he was talking about, it and I said, "Well, you know, Eddie Van Halen, you know." So that that's the kind of. That's that's where they meet, you know, which is of course fascinating. That's a, I love I love that record. I I looked up what what Robert Chrisgar or whatever said about the record, and they're like you know total shit. <laughs> but but, but I, I I got into that record actually after reading about uh, I I got into it. Previously, and then so I was able to talk to Prince about it. It's a, it's a real musician's musician record, anyway. So, and then after that first song, he's like, you know, not now you can go in the audience and a <laughs> all couple right. So, the, right. so what audience, was that experience? Was just me, though, like? yeah. I mean, like, no, no, I mean, it's it honestly is hard to talk or write about because of the like I said of the white hot intensity of it, especially that first song when I was on stage. It just it just you know blew my hair back. It it just was uh yeah I mean you know what because that was an instrumental so it was just him playing guitar and you know I he's one of my favorite favorite guitar players of all time. And uh, and then it was you know listen that band was very powerful I think it lacked you know it, w- it was only one piece of what he did of course their right. third eye girl you know la- that's why he had a funk band at the same time you know they right. didn't have the 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 funk but there was a real power to it in a way and it and it actually was unique because you know the revolution didn't have like a John Bonham esque drummer so it, it there was to his great great credit he was still pioneering new ground towards the end, you know, he because he, he had done rock, but he'd never done, like, that kind of rock, like, the rock that's, like, cream, you know, uh, which might not play to all
1: the strength, but still, you know. Right. Well, we, we were talking earlier about him being the, this unifier, and, you know, it, so many people were so happy... For him to do the other stuff at that time, the funk stuff that was really well reviewed and he came out with some more funk, you know, the, the next year. Uh, and he could have just kept doing that, but he never let go of that that kind of unifying perspective. You know, so playing rock and other types of music was always very much part of him, you know, and jazz too.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think some of the, in some biographies and stuff, they get a little confused about that rock was grafted on later as an interest, but he talked to me about seeing both Grand Funk and Fleetwood Mac, you know, before his first album came out. Actually, his his description of he he got waxed really lyrical about the beginning of the Fleetwood Mac concert and the and the beginning of the chain, which also helped explain later why. He, so I guess he basically that's when his crush on Stevie Nicks started. <laughs> uh, uh, you know who they they later you know had you know perhaps platonic I don't know relation, but the, they certainly knew each other quite well in the in the 80s. But just hearing him describe it in this really odd you know and, and that was in general one of the things is is you know he was as passionate and convincing a music fan as anyone I've ever spoken to in my life. When he spoke about music, he made me want to listen to whatever he was talking about, even if it was stuff I already loved. And... You know, he was Prince, but he, he also was like a real fan of, of music and comedy. And he, he talked about all sorts of things with the kind of passion intensity of a fan. That was fascinating.
1: Which contradicts a lot of people's image of him as not someone who is who's just kind of someone off in his castle and not engaged in the culture.
3: Yes. I mean, for sure, at the same time, he, he was disconnected from current music to be sure i mean he, he he talked about listening he didn't like listening to current pop music i think at some point he definitely kind of drew the gates down he was he was like as a writer do you ever read something and, and start rewriting in your head i was like yes yeah, sometimes he's like well basically i do that always with music you know like i start producing it in my head and it drives me crazy which is you know that's an intense thing i don't know about that but but and you know and then so he said he listens to stuff like uh he said cocteau twins and like the notebook soundtrack uh
1: Wow. Uh, so, so, what's even on that yeah, it's wow. an orchestral yeah. he liked okay. listening to
3: orchestral soundtracks okay. uh, um, and he liked Children of a Lesser God too and it's one of those things you don't quite know what to do with <laughs> right, right. But, but I think it was just amb- you know I, I guess who knows I don't know who am I to question that I can
0: see the Cocktail Twins the Cocktail Twins That's, is one thing yeah, yeah Yeah. Yeah. they did have an album called The Pink Opaque which is <laughs> <a> very Prince <pretty laughs> kind of album title
1: yeah <laughs> um, So some of the things that people have reacted to, readers have reacted to from your piece are, for one, he talked about some uh, archival stuff that he was going to release. So,
3: yeah, I mean, it's sort of well known that he's, you know, I think everyone knows he had unbelievable amounts of material in his vaults. Um, And, and, you know, but what he did is he got a little bit specific and said that, you know, he has a a full, a couple – albums with the revolution in the vault which is I mean you know I mean that, that that's absolutely yeah. mind blowing it's it's like I mean that's not super different to me than hearing that there's like two full Beatles albums that they never really you know what yeah. I mean Like, like yeah. it, it's it, it, you know and it's, it's like pretty casual the way he re- and he even said that like I didn't even give the best songs to the record company sometimes which is like I mean if true I mean I've really been saying this the past couple of days it's like you know if all this stuff comes out it might prompt a real re-evaluation not that he needs it but like you know where people Really start to realize the the breadth and depth and power of, of what he did because that we you know in ten years we may well have double the amount of Prince music that we have now and it and it's not going to be a situation uh, with like with Hendrix and stuff where the like half of it is re-recorded or, or, or second right. rate it may be I'm mean, listening in my opinion you know the Springsteen when he came up with tracks he has songs that are just as good or better. As his un, as his released material, and I, I think that Prince is probably in the same situation,
1: at least I probably mean this, more this so. is the guy who sat on the Black Album for yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and he, he put so many of his greatest songs on B sides, and yeah. soundtracks. Yeah. And you would hunt them down and be so excited when you found them and thought, "This is a song he didn't even put on the album." I mean, the most obvious example is "Erotic City," which yeah, so would have been like one of the two or three best songs on Purple Rain. And he just
3: left it off the album. There's a certain Dylan-esque perversity,
1: that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Right. The, 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 I think he enjoyed that. Um, yeah, it's interesting.
1: You said there, there's one other aspect of your story that people were reacting to online that you mentioned earlier. Well, Please, uh, well, did. there's a few things. I mean, there's you know,
3: we we talked about um, about celibacy because he was you know he was celibate. Um, Although he said, you know, that he's not perfect. So I guess it was something, you know, but but he talked about in terms of fasting, you know, he compared it, which, you know, was also something he did. Like he literally would go, he, he was, you know, casually talked about, you know, on the fourth day of fasting, you don't miss food anymore. So, I mean, he experimented with, you know, deprivation and the, the celibacy was a religious thing, but it was more than that. He talked about rechanneling the energy and, you know, it's obviously a strange thing for Prince of All People to talk about celibacy that said he was surrounded he had a a sort of coterie of uh, female singer-songwriters that he was in constant contact with. One of them, you know, Skyping in, all beautiful, all young and it, but it was all, you know, it, it was at that point celibate, you know.
1: <laughs> Interesting. I one quote that I thought was fascinating was when he started talking about Woody Allen and how Woody Allen is so prolific and he does movies all the time and every three you get a masterpiece. And I thought that that was just so self-aware of him too because he was so prolific and it was something that people knocked him for a lot. Um, and I had never seen him say something about that, about his own output.
3: I mean, I think, yeah, of course, it's only by implication. But yes, you, you know, what he was saying It really is that you needed to get it from your head into the material world, the stuff, and then you could judge it. And so some of that, you know, he might imply that maybe he's not releasing. In his mind, maybe he's only releasing what he thinks is the best of it. It's unclear. you know, Right, the, the, so it's but, unclear but, if he
1: thought of himself sure, as. Sure, yeah. but...
3: but but he was saying that, that you know, it's, it's just like that's why I need to record so much because it's in his head, but he can't judge it until it's out there. Um, and so that, that's what a lot of his process. But was I,
1: I, Yeah. I mean, maybe whether he acknowledged it or not, I do see the similarities between him and Woody Allen because both of them in, later in their career are comfortable with doing kind of genre things. You know, like Woody Allen is comfortable with doing Bullets Over Broadway or smaller movies, movies that aren't aiming to find out the meaning of life. And Prince was happy to do a jazz record. And do something, you know, and and he every once in a while you'd hit on something amazing.
3: It's yeah, it's interesting. It's also it's also funny to you know just thinking about him watching Woody Allen movies is also funny That's for it. some reason. <laughs> like, but but you know he loved it, and he also waxed lyrical about you know he was actually complaining about. That Eddie Murphy apparently said to him, like, a few years ago, he saw a show, and he was like, Eddie apparently said to him, man, it's not like it was in the 80s, and Prince took spectacular offense at that. But, <laughs> but then he went on, then he did go on to, you know, he started praising Nutty Professor, and he was like a film critic. He was he was talking about the virtuosity of it and how he just disappeared into the and it was it was interesting to hear. I mean, he really got into like like what you know the, the, the studying yeah, the, yeah, nutty the, professor. The, the details of what 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 Eddie did in the Nutty Professor, which which I'm sure Eddie would greatly appreciate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, a longer piece about your visit to Paisley Park and kind of your lost interview with Prince is going to be in the next issue of Rolling Stone, and I encourage everyone to to check it out. Brian Hyatt. Thanks for coming. Cool, thank you for having me, and you too, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to end this podcast with a special edition of Reader Mail. We're going to do something a little different, where we are going to read some of the letters that we got from our Prince cover story from 1984, which features a famous Richard Avedon shot of Prince, kind of his armpit, kind of with no shirt on, uh, with his arm up. I'm here with Andy Green. Hi. Hey, Andy. We're going to talk a little bit about just the context of this cover, which is pretty famous. And, I mean, at the time, people forget how provocative Prince was.
4: Yeah, he was seen as sort of a deviant by a lot of parents and everything, you know, because songs, because there many of his songs had really strong sexual overtones. And at the time, it was kind of shocking to a lot of people.
1: I'm going to read one letter. Uh, Okay. This is from Alan H. Shearer in Scotts Valley, California. First, the Go Go's in their underwear, which is a great reference. <laughs> yes. uh, the Go Go's had just been on the cover, and now Prince's armpit. My only regret is that the cover didn't come complete with scratch and sniff. Oh, Ugh. keep up the quality work. <laughs> um, so yeah, that kind of underlines that.
4: Yeah, it was. This is the period in which MTV was really starting to take off and drive music sales, and it was getting more visual, and people, and it was shocking some people. <laughs>
1: Well, you mentioned earlier that Tipper Gore started the PMRC Yes, yes. because of Prince.
4: Yeah, there's songs like Darling Nikki that kids are listening to that in the minds of people like Tipper Gore were really, they were scandalizing, you know, all the youth of the country.
1: She took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She had some And for was, people who are too young to remember, that was one of the first real kind of... Uh, that that was the first organized movement to get kind of a rating system on mm-hmm. records. This yeah. is before pop records had any sort of explicit rating. Right. So they opted in the end for
4: a voluntary system, if I recall.
1: Right. Uh,
4: but all that did was drive sales further because that sticker on the CD was sort of a sign that that was a cool album. So the whole thing backfired in insane ways, really.
1: Right. And then they, they didn't even know what was coming with NWA. Oh, and right. And yeah, NBA. they had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if
4: they thought Prince was dirty, they had no clue what was coming. Right. Two live crew in a few years or something. It was,
1: But, but of course, not everybody was uh, so unhappy with our, our Prince uh, covers back in the day. This is from Christy Huggins, Sumter, South Carolina. Finally, a decent article on a super sexy man, Prince. I was in awe of the sensual cover photo and the inside pictures. I haven't felt so mesmerized by a musician since Peter Frampton. <laughs> I want more, more, more. Amen, Christie.
4: Yeah, that's a that's a cool reminder that Frampton at one point was was the most famous musician on the planet for about six
1: months. Very attractive man. Very attractive <laughs>
4: man, and like Prince, was a was a awesome guitar player.
1: I'm seeing all yeah. sorts of parallels here. Yeah, there are not before. many parallels, but. <laughs> We're going to wrap up our special time capsule edition of Reader Mail. Thanks for listening to Rolling Stone Music Now and our special edition on Prince. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us at the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.